You're listening to Drinking on the Job, D-O-T-J. I'm your host, John Coyle. Drinking on the Job is a toast to the culture of food, wine, and all things fermented. We'll be talking with winemakers, musicians, artists, late-night bartenders, scoundrels, and more. It's time to grab a glass before its last call. This episode is about you, the listener. Today I'm with former opera singer Ryan Looper. He is one of the top wine salesmen in the country, and he's going to help you pick your wines for the holidays. All right, it's the Christmas season. I'm sitting with a good buddy of mine, Ryan Looper, ex-opera singer turned wine salesperson, wine aficionado, but since it is Christmas and he's an opera singer, I'm going to say, what's your favorite Christmas song? Ooh, because we're going to sing the opening bars to it. <laughs> <laughs> oh, Holy Night. Ooh. Ooh. Or uh, uh, I like uh, Drummer Boy, too, Little Drummer Boy. Let's do Oh, Holy Night. Right? We'll do a couple of bars. Ready? You On got three. One, two, three. Oh, holy night, the stars are brightly shining. It is the night of our dear Savior's birth. All right. Why not? That's not bad. We <laughs> still got it. We, yeah, you, yeah, got, you got it, man. We, we got to do a, like some kind of <laughs> barbershop quartet, right? Doo-wop. Yeah. So we got to hit the streets. Doo-wop. Little garbage can, light the fire, take me back. Boo-doo-boo-boo. <laughs> Anyway, super happy to have Ryan Looper here as my guest today. Uh, as I mentioned, uh, Looper, you traveled the world singing opera uh, before you found your second passion, which is wine. I went, yeah, I, I had a couple opportunities to travel, and mostly I was domestic. But mm-hmm. uh, yeah, I, um, opera was a, a big part of my life. Still is mm-hmm. a big now, part of my you're life. Always up at Lincoln Center whenever you can get tickets, you're up there. Yeah. What's your favorite opera house in the country? Another great question, John. Mm-hmm. Uh, I like the Met a lot. Yeah. A Met, the Met is is the top of the top. Mm-hmm. It's big. It's where the most money goes. It's where all the top singers are. But so in the U.S., I think um, that's the one. Right. However, there's an opera house in Santa Fe, New Mexico, that right. is stunning. So that would be the other end of the spectrum, outdoor or partially outdoor and mm-hmm. summer festival style. But I like the Met. All right. So you're... Um, you want to, we use the word uh, wine geek, and the the, um, the the word geek means uh, it's a positive thing. So there are opera geeks, right? Oh yeah, for sure. Uh, like, I am one of those. Yeah, I know because <laughs> I've been with Ryan Looper on the streets of New York, and he goes, "You know who that is, right?" I'm like, "No, no idea." And then you would mention some opera star, like I should know it, but I could see by the way your eyes have dilated in your voice. You're like, "Wow, that's somebody big," and uh, I think it's cool as shit that you still recognize it, still have that love and passion, and you listen still to a lot of opera. I think it's an amazing art form. Mm-hmm. I think at its, at its best, you get the purity of someone's soul, who they are via their voice. Mm-hmm. You get the addition of orchestra, dance, acting. It actually exists in opera, acting. Right. Yeah. People do act. And it, there's something about when that comes together in a great way that just touches me and a lot of people deeper than maybe some other art forms so my opera story is i have been to lincoln center a few times and they put the the little telestrator in the bar that has the english translation and uh gail and i went to see uh la boheme and i was sitting next to some guy who was 107 so he's a few years older than i was and there was a big controversy in the new york times about it the purists were saying how it was destroying opera and i remember wow this is perfect chance for me to ask somebody and I turned to him and asked him what he thought, and 
he loved it because he said it's such a beautiful art form and if it helps in any way to keep this thing alive, he was all for it. And I thought that was such a beautiful kind of uh, explanation for what it was about. And I'm like, yeah, he's totally right. I love the stories. I barely looked at the, t- at the words because the storylines are so oversimplified but beautiful. It's, it's passionate. Somebody's leaving. Somebody's dying. Somebody's falling out of love. Um, what's your favorite opera? It's a little bit like choosing a child in right. a way because I love them so much. But uh, I think La Traviata is an incredible opera. I think Carmen, some of the classics are so great. I love Otello. Mm-hmm. I love Falstaff. Uh, Mozart-wise, probably Cosi Fantute. It was the first opera I ever saw. Mm-hmm. Is a really fun one. Barbara Seville by Rossini. Uh, I yeah. love the Barbara the Bugs, Seville. The Bugs Bunny. The Bugs one Bunny that they've always that copied off. Knows. <laughs> yeah, that's, that's a great one. Yeah. It be, it, it's got... It's got all the the flavors that you need for a, a great night. Isn't it funny that like those cartoons have probably planted the seed for us to love classical music? I mean, from when we were kids, it's Bugs Bunny. All those they had like string sections and real orchestras. Well, when behind. I was a kid, John. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, it's true. The, uh... You know, when we were in the cave, um, and, and they would pantomime these things out by fire, and they just invented fire, which is very cool. Uh, shadow puppets on the wall, but. It is true that that opera was uh, part of the the culture in a different way at that time. Mm. Now it's it's dwindled a bit because of cost and people's. Uh, they seem to like artificial sound now. Mm-hmm. You listen to the radio and there's a lot of auto tuning. There's nothing auto tuned about opera, right. and so I. In those days, I, I it introduced a lot of people to the the tunes, mm-hmm. right. Sure. Yeah, it was the, it was the, uh, the, the radio of the time. It was yeah. uh, people would you know come out humming and singing the songs. Uh, uh, it's a beautiful form. I still love it. And uh, you're right. I love real music, instruments, uh, which is even why like the Freddie Mercury movie uh, uh, is, is people walk away loving because I think part of the reason they walk away loving that movie is because they get to heal, they get to hear real orchestra. I would love to yeah. see this movie. Yeah. Uh, Freddie Mercury was very friendly with Montserrat Cavier, who just mm-hmm. passed away, actually. He was a famous Spanish soprano, one of the best of, of the last century. And he, he studied opera. You know, he was really into it. Right. And he did a couple pieces with her crazy stuff. I can't wait to see that movie. Well, and his f- f- most famous piece is an, is an opera piece, really, mm-hmm. right? Yeah. Uh, yeah. So uh, super cool. So yeah, with the segue from uh, doing opera and then into wine. For you, uh, so Ryan Looper is one of the top salesmen in New York, and number wise, probably in the country uh, for selling wine. And uh, you're, I think, for knowing a bunch of great people, great at anything, um, uh, particularly sales. The the crossover of of passion that you have for language. Uh, you speak Italian, French, and some English, and. Uh, Just you're a, a language English. guy. Yeah. <laughs> Late at night, barely link English. I don't even know what it is, but uh, but uh, I think that as uh, your natural curiosity for everything just continues. Like you have to, you have you you drink a wine, you have to find out where it's from, who made it. Uh, was that the beginning? Was there a bottle of wine that you said, "Oh my God"? First of all, I, I have to say thank you for all that. I, I when I got into wine, I never would have thought that I'd be having a conversation like this with mm-hmm. someone that I was a mentor and mm-hmm. is a mentor and I've admired and followed. 
it was weird because I came to New York not really thinking about exactly what I wanted to do. I, I wanted to continue with opera. I was having some trouble. I had a relationship that was going south. Mm-hmm. I moved here. 9-11 happened. Right. I got a restaurant job. And I just sort of stayed there. I don't really know why. It just sort of happened. And over the years, I, I saw these, these people come in, some regulars of mine at Carmine's on 44th Street. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> Not known for its wine, but at the time, <laughs> we had a few good things. These guys would come in, and they would spend a ton of money, and they would talk about wine to me. And they seemed like they were having a blast. And one year, it was about third year, I asked them what they did, and they said they were in the wine business. And it put the seed in my mind that this would be sure. something interesting. They were just having a blast, right. spending money, drinking the craziest stuff off the wine list. They would leave half a magnum for the staff. I, they, they were living it up. This was early 2000s. Yeah. And eventually I just got to the point where I had to decide whether I'd be a restaurant manager try and sing opera again, which was, I was still keeping it up and I was still studying or try something different. And it felt like I wanted to try something different. Right. So I went on a couple interviews and was hired at Monsieur Touton. Mm-hmm. Oof. Yeah. Lasted there for 48 hours after the training <laughs> and then called T. Edward and, uh, and begged for a job. And here I am. And now you're number one. Um, <laughs> so uh, two things that, that strike me is I just uh, used I used to be in the restaurant business as well. Restaurants become your family, so it's hard to leave them. Am I right? That's one of the things you're like, I just can't pull myself away. You make great money if you're in the right place. I was taking home a lot of cash. So what, like ballpark number? At its height at Carmine's, I was doing between seventy-five and eighty-five grand a year. Wow. And working three nights and one lunch. Wow. So we were making very serious money. And at one point, it was all cash. This was, this feels like. It felt like a drug dealer walking in the restaurant, It feels like a hundred right? years ago, yeah. right? But it, it was all cash. And we would all wait at the end and count our money together. And it was a pooled house. And we'd go out and blow it and do right. whatever. But it, it was real money. Right. I, I remember telling my parents what I was making. And they just, they couldn't believe it. I couldn't believe it. Yeah, it's, uh, it's, that's why it's hard to break. That's why it's hard to break Golden out of the handcuffs. business. Yeah. Uh, so it, it, can you age out of opera? Because you do age out of restaurants, I feel. Unless you become a manager, a general manager. And then you're still logging in some serious hours. And you're working on Thanksgiving. And you're working on Christmas. You might be working New Year's Eve. That's what becomes the grind. Uh, so a lot of people age out of the restaurant business. Can you age out of opera? In terms of singing, yes. Okay. Uh, there are notable exceptions. Placido Domingo, just, I just heard him at the Met. And he's been singing there for 50 years. He made his debut in 1968. Wow. So there are notable exceptions. But in general, it's a very tough job. You, it's high pressure. You're in front of an orchestra. You're paid only if you get half of the performance done. So if you're sick and you call out, you don't get paid. It's a, it's a demanding job. A lot of people don't last in, into their 60s. And also and keeping, those that do are the best. Yeah, and keeping your voice prepped is, I mean, I can't imagine, because, uh, correct, me, correct me if I'm wrong, but I believe the best singers are the ones who can hit those impossible notes 
Um, and that makes or breaks their career. If you can't get the note, give me that note. What note would that be? Not singing. What For note? a tenor? Right. High C. High C, right. And high C, it's like a mental tight. I mean, you're on a tightrope. You're, you're, sure. If you're not perfectly balanced as a singer in terms of the way you're handling your voice, hmm. it's not easy to sing high Cs. And often, these are the hits that opera crowds know, and they're waiting for the high C. So you can't bag out. Right. So the opera geeks, as we mentioned, are the people sitting there going, here it comes. This is why I spent $250 for a ticket, because there's only few people who can do this. Hit that C and just deliver the goods. Yeah. And that's, uh, that's the best of the best. Yep. And so, so <clears throat> to, be, to be fair, uh, yeah, you can age out. Of opera, a lot of people do, but the very, very best sing until their sixties. Wow. wow! Well, while we have a, a another wine expert sitting here today, uh, it is Christmas. We're a couple of weeks away from Christmas. Um, everyone always asks me, "What should I be drinking for Christmas?" And New Year's is coming up. What do I drink? So, let's put a little list together for people. Uh, for Christmas, and let's make it interesting. We'll try to match it off of a movie. So, if you're watching The Grinch Who Stole Christmas, <laughs> what's the wine that matches that movie? I like Cabinet Riesling for Grinch. Ah. I like white wine for The Grinch Who Stole Christmas. Something that has a little bit of residual sugar that's... Maybe a little salty and sweet at the same time. You can drink it easily. Yeah. So I like that. I like that too. I'll tell you why I like Riesling. That's a good call. Because it can have just a little bit of sweetness. And now people don't, don't shriek when you say sweet. We're talking very little. Um, and what that does is it complements the salt. Mm. Uh, from, from anything that has salt. And most great food has some salt to it. And secondly... Um, Riesling is a great wine to drink because the alcohol is very low. So my wife likes it when I drink Riesling so that I'm not singing pirate songs two hours into our dinner party. So for that reason, I would say, yes, the Grinch Who Stole Christmas would be Riesling. Um, but uh, You give the Grinch Viognier. <laughs> so whoever's the Grinch in your family, you give them a glass of Viognier. Yeah. And you say, enjoy this. Yeah, and, and then walk away laughing. Uh, Viognier is the kind of a, it's, it's the punchline to a lot of uh, wine jokes. That and Pinotage is sort of our favorite South African wines that should never have been made. Uh, you know where to drop the comments for me on that one. Uh, but, uh, yeah, I think I, I, I get these comments. You get it. Everyone's like, hey, Ryan, what should I be drinking for Christmas? Riesling's a good place to go to start for wine. Champagne. We all champagne, talk about that. But yeah. it's, hard to, it's hard to figure out quality. We just had not a good glass of yeah. champagne recently. But you can buy really good bubbles and have a good time. I like Barolo. I'm yeah. obsessed with Barolo. Right. That's a good one. So let's talk about Barolo. Let's talk about Nebbiolo for a second. That's one of your loves. You travel to Italy a lot. Um, let's dissect Nebbiolo for a second. I don't want to get super geeky, but Nebbiolo is the grape in uh, Barolo and Barbaresco and a bunch mm-hmm. of other producers in Piedmont. But... Why I like it, and let's discuss this, because people always think sure. like Nebbi- you know, Barolo is like these really big wines. The truth is, it's really a complexity and a tannin thing. It's not a big gangbuster Cabernet fruit bomb. Um, I liken it to, it's like 
Uh, it's the most intellectually compelling red varietal for me because it can dance in so many different ways. But it always is pretty linear, straight front to forward and the producers. And So the classic profile for Nebbiolo would be for, that makes you happy. You just opened a bottle, you poured it into the glass, you smell. What makes you smile ear to ear? Floral, mm-hmm. open, red-fruited, but not sweet. Right. There's an earthiness to it that can come off like limestone or clay. It kind of mm-hmm. varies. It, it smells like something that you want to smell again. Mm-hmm. Whenever I smell great Nebbiolo, I, I can sort of just sit there with it. It starts to un, unveil. There's a lot of layers to it. There'll be dried flowers. There'll be some sort of smokiness. Or you could get a truffle. Right. And when it gets the white truffle, you start getting into tertiary tones. It's, right. it's a really special varietal because now having seen it in Valtellina, which is a whole other area, Alto Piemonte, in the Lange. It transmits terroir. Right. When done well, it transmi- transmits terroir, and most of them are underpriced for what they are. You can drink them now. You can drink them way later. You can check them out in between. Right. And That's Nebbiolo. And it's the classic truffle uh, companion, Nebbiolo. So, yeah, it's one of them. Yeah. Uh, we just had some truffles yesterday at the Nomad. Uh, spectacular. Delicious. Uh, and it's, it, yeah, and they're white truffles because there are trifle, truffles from all over. Uh, the world now, pretty much Australia, California, Turkey, you name it. But still, Italy is white truffles from Italy. They're the kings. Yeah. Uh, uh, second uh, red wine you would go with. I, I'm a, a Pinot Noir guy, so um, I lean toward Burgundy uh, for me for Christmas. Um, if someone can't afford Burgundy, what do you give them? That's a very good question. I would say, for me, uh, equally as like elegant and uh, as juicy, it would be Gamay. So I would go to Beaujolais, Cru Beaujolais, and uh, not Beaujolais Nouveau. Don't ever buy that wine. It'll give you a headache. Um, but uh, good Gamay, which is the grape uh, from France, from Beaujolais, I think you can't go wrong with. Uh, And again, because it's just generous. That's why I like Pinot Noir in general. It's generous. It's flexible with food. um, And just uh, it's a fun wine. It's not, you know, Nebbiolo to me sometimes can be Tolstoy, uh, where Gamay uh, can be, you know, People Magazine, uh, which, you know, if you're taking a dump, sometimes People Magazine is the perfect thing you want to read. Uh, (laughs) Nice imagery, John. Uh, Yeah, well, it's just, uh, you know, you have to... uh, uh, you have to speak what you know, uh, but no, I mean that's what's that's what's great about wine. Uh, I love wine. We both, uh, uh, Looper and I, talk obsessively about wine that would not make an interesting podcast for sure. That's true. But we do have put people um, to sleep. It would put people to sleep. But we have our favorites. Um, so let's go to a wine today. As usual, sometimes I try to match the personality to the wine. Uh, today's wine is Robert Sinsky POV. That stands for Point of View. And uh, this wine is something I love because it does remind me of Looper. It's complex. Um, there's a bunch of things that make it interesting, much like my friend Looper here. Um, it's Cab, it's Merlot, it's Cab Franc. Um, and the cool thing is Rob's wife, Maria, is a chef, famous chef, has a few cookbooks, has a Plump Jack Cafe. But I think a chef's hand is obvious here. Jeff Vernick makes the wine, but the family and everyone's input on it, I mean, 
we've always said one of our Luba and I favorite comments about great wine is that it should always kind of taste like food. Um, and uh, California has a tendency sometimes to be a little bit overripe. These are more balanced and earthy. And so we're going to take a taste of Sinsky POV. That's delicious. Right? Savory. Yeah. For, for its neighbors, it's very savory. Right. For California, it's, it's got a lot of kind of herbal notes to it, uh, but still lots of juicy blackberry, uh, darker fruits. Um, this is a great uh, Christmas wine, New Year's Eve wine. Um, no doubt. Uh, I, 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 could, I could definitely drink this uh, all day. Um, but, uh, um, yeah, and they're certified organic and all the kind of fun stuff that makes uh, all of our, our friends uh, happy. And uh, uh, you know what's crazy is we see a huge push now for vegan wines, um, which is uh, um, it, it kind of drives me crazy. But at the same time, I do kind of love people who get so obsessive about detail uh, that it's kind of cool. It's like having a, it's like an opera geek. It's like a mm. like an audio geek who's you know spends a thousand dollars on a needle for their turntable. Um, I think it's interesting, and I think the more people that are interested in wine for whatever reason, all all the better for us. Totally, I think that's an extension of the organic movement, mm-hmm. which is overall a very, very, very good thing. We've seen it with food. People are more concerned. Maybe the whole foods effect. They're more concerned with what they're putting in their bodies. Right. Is it is it organic? Do we eat organic? It's natural. You start saying, "Are we drinking organic?" Mm-hmm. And we've seen that. And and of course, vegan is just, I think, a step from there. Yeah, it, it is. But for me, also, it's just, uh, I think it's cool that people are obsessing about it and natural wine, uh, particularly in a climate where, uh, right now, you know, our current administration doesn't believe in science. So uh, the earth is taking a little bit of an ass whooping. So uh, as our wine consumption goes up and the winemakers are taking better care of their vineyards and the earth. Um, we're all better for it, right? I mean, yeah, for sure. It's it's really interesting because that's one of the bigger trends overall, the mm-hmm. overarching that I've seen. And then on top of that is just in New York, at least the the change in flavor profile. People like fermented flavors. People drink kombucha. Right. It's gone from kind of the Coca Cola palate to the more savory, fermented, salty sort of palate. I'm broad. This is broad strokes, obviously, but in general, you've seen. I think you've seen. Yeah. T- wines that ten years ago would have just sat there, never. And now yeah. people drink them like crazy, right. and it's an openness to you know they're they're acquiring taste. I mean, I, we had a conversation with Andre Tamers, who you know, and we talked about cider for quite a bit. And uh, cider, kombucha, and a lot of natural wines have a very similar. It's that fermented. Uh, yeasty, cidery kind of you know component that I actually like, and it feels like I'm drinking a probiotic drink in the right <laughs> mind. That's what you tell yourself. Yeah, that's what I tell myself. In, and, the, in that moment, yeah. when, when I remember many years ago, I was in a store. It was one of my first major appointments at a, a store that's no longer there, called Appalachian. And the wine buyer Scott asked me all these questions, and I remember thinking. Why does he care if it's native fermented? Why does he care about the farming so much? Why does he... He, he was kind of rolling through all of these different uh, components that he mm-hmm. wanted to know about the wine. Vinification, he was very detailed. He's a very detailed person. But it was really helpful because I saw that, that that was the beginning. And sooner or later, I mean, 
maybe a year later, everybody was asking me those questions. Yeah, it was no. like, and that, that was really, in terms of natural wine, that was the beginning that I saw in 2007. It had already obviously been going on, but he was asking these questions of reps that made us think about what we were presenting. I mean, we should care what we put in our bodies. It's really no just, it breaks down to that simple. Oh, yeah. You know, kind of thing of like, you know, it's, yes, it's alcohol. If you're really, the thing that does drive me crazy, people are really crazy about it. It's just like, maybe you don't want to be drinking alcohol. Yeah. It's just, uh, but I at least appreciate um, the, you know, the care that, you know. How, how brilliant, though, of the original, the OG ambassadors mm-hmm. of natural wine to start training buyers to ask other salespeople questions of wines that that they they knew the answers to you know for instance they knew that all of their wines ticked those boxes the moment that buyers started asking other people they realized oh wait those wines don't tick those boxes so it started separating things very cleanly did you read the jordan salcedo bobby stuckey thing i did yes um natural wine fox news yes you know i i have a um you know, I, it's it's crazy how the wine world, like any other uh, uh, platform, can become political so quick. My problem is I don't want to just uh, do a blanket statement about natural wine being Fox News. To me, that's just stupid. I mean, there's lots of great natural wine that I love to drink. And particularly, and I don't think it has anything to do with age. I don't think uh, uh, Stucky's that old. I think it just people get stuck in their own headspace. I mean, I... I will talk to young sommeliers who are 27 who will tell me, like, oh, my God, I hate natural wine. It tastes like shit. It doesn't taste like, you know, where it, what it should be, and it doesn't taste like real wine. And I'm amazed that I, I will run into that from somebody so young, and I realize it's really a headset. Um, it's, a, you know, people who want to uh, continue to grow, expand, whether it's their palate, their mind, their body, they continue to be curious and want to continue objectively to look at stuff. And um, I never want that to die. I don't ever want to shut that off in my head. So I'm, with you. Um, I'm not a kid, and I'm like, there's lots of natural wine that I love. And obviously, with people who are 10 years younger, they go, man, this I don't like this. This tastes weird to me. And they and what they want to taste is something that's almost industrial in comparison, or very traditional. I'm like, Jesus Christ, who put a bow tie on you, kid? You're like 20. <laughs> like, settle the fuck down, right? I mean, like. Uh, that's what I don't get. I don't want it to be political. I don't want to have an argument with somebody who's um, an MS or not an MS about something as ridiculous. Hey, I have a great idea. Why don't you like what you like? I'll like what I like. Right? You don't go to a museum and stand in front of the Calder Mobile and go, look at that piece of shit. What is that? It's all recycled crap. Who would make that? I mean, that's your opinion. You know, you, you, or you do shop with a toilet in the middle of the road. You know, right. that sort of idea. I mean, for me, I thought the article was had a lot of good points in it, Hmm. which I think were lost in the kind of flare shots of some of the lines. And I, I I know both of them and I, I like both of them. Hmm. I think they, they elegantly marketed this article very well. Hmm. They got the reaction that they, I'm assuming they wanted a reaction or they wouldn't have written it. There's been some backlash. And actually, oddly, both of them make wine in the can. So I don't know if there's any really vinous high ground you could be standing on when you're making wine in the can. Uh, Because that's just quaffable, crushable wine. So don't be so precious. Uh, Do you think the sommelier is dying out? 
Um, Which was one of the premises, I mean, the general premises of the article. That psalms and restaurants are dying out. Uh, you, you know what? I, I don't think they are. I think the precious psalm with the testivan or the guy who's going to come over to you and kind of browbeat you a little bit, yeah, that's going, going, uh, that's going to the graveyard. Um, I'm down with that. I think the, because if you look in general, white tablecloth restaurants are on the decline. Uh, whether you're at Oxamoco in Brooklyn and it's a Michelin star restaurant, it's a Mexican joint with no tablecloths. Uh, I think people are into fantastic flavors and uh, innovative cuisine, and they don't want somebody standing tableside uh, talking at you. Uh, we're, in general, the public's pretty well informed. And uh, I think so. I think it's, it's, it's going away. Uh, and, it, and it should. Let's take the pretense out of wine. I've always said that. It just should be a, it's something for the people. The more, the more connective a person is tableside, if, if you ask for someone to come over and talk to them about the wine list, you're mm-hmm. sitting down, and this sommelier walks over. The more connective and uh, empathetic that person is, that's one of the major things I judge Mm-hmm. sommeliers for if they're very connective then they're fantastic because yeah. the knowledge a lot of people have knowledge but the the table side connectiveness is yeah. it's a big deal it's key i think uh for uh I, you know that's that's a good thing we should chat about for a second picking wine and making people feel comfortable in a restaurant um you know the psalm shouldn't just point and uh at an expensive bottle and you nod and then they point to another bottle that's cheaper um i think so for people listening going to a restaurant uh be informed but informed in one way and one way only uh here's a great comparison if i was in spain and i was sitting in a cafe uh, or a spaniard to be more specific sitting in a cafe and they said i'll have a bottle of chocolate that we've mentioned a couple times in the podcast now if the psalm or somebody said to him hey to the customer, do you know what the grape is in chocolate? They would look at you like you had fucking three heads. They know what they like. They know that chocolate should be salty and it should be you know, fresh and minerally and lively. Um, the American obsession with detail of like, well, you probably don't know where this is. Why don't you let me tell you uh, where this Portuguese blue varietal came from? And like, what? How about as a consumer in a psalm um, saying, what, so what flavor profile do you like? As a consumer coming in saying, you know what, I really like big, oaky, powerful wines. Great. I got some great stuff for you. I like stuff that has no oak, really clean. Or I like, oh, you know what, Fuck, I want something really fun and funky. Just you run and you, I don't really care. I just want to experiment. You control the narrative when you're sitting at a table, and that's what I would tell consumers. Don't be bullied, and you should never feel like, you know, that you're, you know, Dumb, and that's no psalm should ever do that to you. However, one can describe what they like. That's the sommelier table side's job is to help someone help ferret out what this person would enjoy in that evening. And I think some of the detail detailing table side is a little bit brush strokes and not the full painting. Mm-hmm. So, I want when I go out, oftentimes I'll say, Hey, what do you really like? What are you into right now? Right between this this price point and this price point. And there's nothing wrong with doing that. No. That is very simple. It gives someone the opportunity to show what they're into. Exactly. That's what I like. So if, if I strike a report and I think, hey, the Psalm's a pretty cool guy. You've actually done this with me, and I've, I, this is a, a great thing to do. Go into a restaurant, and the Psalm's talking. It really seems like you connect. And you say, what should everybody be drinking in this restaurant? But they're not. What's your, you choose the wine list. What wine did you choose that goes with this food so well, but 
people just don't order it. What's that wine? If it's not like over 100, could you bring me a bottle of that? Or if it's, if it's decent price, can you bring me a bottle of that? That's a great way to know who the psalmist is. That's a great way. I mean, that's his profession, right? So we asked Sarah at Nomad mm-hmm. yesterday yeah. to bring us a sparkling, and she did a fantastic job bringing us something we'd never had before from Wenslau. Right. That over-delivered. And I was super impressed. That's, that's someone who does their job and knows their job. She was right there with right. us. Yeah. And that's, it's important because that, that, I think, is the art of the sommelier in a way. I, I think we're very confused generally about the difference between a sommelier and a beverage director or a mm-hmm. wine director. Those two things can be the same. You know, those two people can be one and the same. But they're not always. Mm-hmm. There are different skill sets right. in many ways. Sure. And I actually I like a small kind of more compact list. I hate, uh, I hate going out and it's like a 50-page wine list because I literally will go to the restaurant early to look at the wine list so that my wife's not staring at me going, <laughs> really? Can you just pick a bottle of wine? <laughs> this, is, this is one right. uh, situation in the world where bigger is definitely not better. Right. I don't think you need to have a 100-page wine list to show that you're a good wine restaurant. And I, that's been proven. I would think it's actually easier. All you have to do is check off all the boxes. Um, being creative and putting together a smaller list that can hit on all these different notes, that's a fun place. That's many places I, I, I love to go. So uh, let's give the people a couple more suggestions for Christmas uh, wines. Uh, and then uh, at the same time, because I, I like uh, two tracks running at the same time, you have to tell me your favorite Christmas movie. So whichever pops in your head first. (laughs) I want to pull a Lazarus move here and go with some port. Because port port gets zero love. Tawny or Ruby? I like late bottle vintage. Okay. You can still find a lot of late bottle vintage for very low price. Mm -hmm. I like, really, port is about as dead as Pinotage in this market. (laughs) And you, <laughs> I think it it's true. one of those so. things that can be delicious. Right. People would like it. Right. It would go with the end of a meal. It, there's something regal about it. Mm-hmm. They age forever. True. I, I'll tell you what I like. I think if you're going to do port to start, it's a nice to start with tawny port. So tawny has this a little more kind of like, uh, it's a little bit lighter. It's a more like hazelnut and walnuts, and, uh, but still like good fruit. Uh, I love tawny port uh ruby's darker more brooding but still i totally agree that's a well look at you resurrecting a category <laughs> but particularly winter well, time. i sold two Holidays. bottles last week john so I'm... <laughs> that's nice a personal purchase uh from the company uh but yeah it's a, it, that's a great one and and for after particularly in the winter time i totally agree sitting by a fire sitting at the end of a day a port or for the holidays Looper, I, I, I want to tell him to give you 10 points for resurrecting chestnuts, a category. You, you get yeah. these chestnuts. Right. There are all sorts of, of uh, after-dinner things that would go with port. And uh, it doesn't have to be a, an episode from Frasier. You know, you can, just, <laughs> you can just hang out and have a little port. Right. And it's delicious. It probably right. on discount in a lot of stores. Yeah, absolutely. Right? Yeah, and get non-vintage if you don't want to spend the money to see if you like it. So don't ask for a vintage port, which is they only uh, declare, declare a vintage uh uh, those are more expensive, and they need to age a little more. But just start with a tawny or uh, like Sandman's tawny or uh, Taylor or uh, Ruby or tawny. Pick Coburn. Pick Coburn. Which is, it says yeah. Cockburn, but, it, but it's Coburn. Yeah, please. Uh, 
Actually, no, I actually pronounce it the wrong way. It's actually more give the give the clerk something to laugh about. The poor person sitting in a retail store, just like somebody just asked for Cockburn. Um, I, ha- I like Uncle Buck, by the way, as my Christmas movie. Okay. Have you ever seen Uncle Buck? Uncle Buck's John Candy, but I'm going to go back to Cockburn. If you do, do ask for that in a store and they yell out a woman or a man's name after that, run. But Uncle Buck, John Candy, very good movie. Uh, I don't, uh, I'm trying to think of what, what is my. So Uncle Buck had a Christmas movie? Uncle Buck, there's a Christmas element in it. Okay. As I remember, okay. unless I'm. I you think know, you're this, dead this wrong. This wine is giving <laughs> to me. Right on the port, wrong on the movie. It's possible. No. I'm still a, it's a wonderful life guy. I gotta say. Do you see that, Mary? <laughs> <laughs> what do you want, Mary the Moon? <laughs> We're gonna do dueling stewards. <laughs> but Bo, she's a big kid. <laughs> I really like that movie. However, yes. I have a hard time watching it sometimes because it makes it makes me sad. Yeah. It. Uh, yeah. It's a. Uh, it's a great. It's a great it cast. Great. It's. Uh, it but it's great. so such a good story. Um, uh, that I gotta say, Elf, man, I Do love, I love Peter Dinklage movie? as the angry uh, ad exec who comes in as. Uh, what is the movie with Billy Bob Thornton where he opens? He's Bad Santa. Bad that Santa. That is a brilliant movie. He's vomiting within the first two <laughs> minutes of the movie. It's got so many things in it that are hilarious yeah. and non sequitur. Yeah, you don't know where they came from. My Bad Santa story is I'm sitting there with my uh, wife and her dad, and an ad comes off of that movie. I already saw it. I laughed so hard. And uh, Gail's dad, who I love, who's the sweetest man I've ever met in my life, looks at me and he goes, my God, man, who would ever watch something like that? Guys, <laughs> uh, I have no idea. What's the world coming to? Uh, but actually, Elf is one of my favorites. Um, really obscure movie, um, The Walton's Homecoming. It is so, it, it takes place during the Depression, the Walton, a family of 10, and the dad is, uh, it's the Depression, and he's, uh, he's working four towns away or something. It's Christmas Eve, a snowstorm hits, and he's got the money he's going to bring home so they can have their Christmas. And they send the boy out, who's probably 16, to find the dad and the stress of the family and, and the journey to go find the dad. He runs into the Baldwin sisters who have a still and they need him to come into the house. And it's such a great story. It's such an odd Christmas uh, special, but it just blows me away. That's amazing. Yeah, that's, that's a good one. It, yeah. That's, I used to watch the Waltons. Yeah, I know. Uh, it's uh wow. That in Dallas. Am <laughs> I you? dating myself? Yeah, no. JR. You watch, watch Dallas living in Dallas. Wow. That's right. You're a Texas guy. Yeah. Uh, um, so in the uh, in your run-ins around restaurants and uh, carrying your sack around the city and with wine in it, uh, famous run-ins. Who do you who do you run into? Well, I have two have stories you- that come to mind. One is I was sitting at a restaurant called Nick and Tony's in Lincoln Center area, oh, okay. and I'm sitting at the bar having a glass of wine, and who sits next to me but Patricia Clarkson? She's sitting there. And we start chatting, and we have, like, three drinks together. She's a total fun, amazing. She was in the Green Mile. She was in the Station Agent. Oh, okay. Dogville, Good Luck, The Pledge. She's been around. Okay. Um, she was so fun. And we, we just sat there and got drunk together. Wow. And so that was a really fun one for me because yeah. we just – I had seen her in this obscure – 
sketch on YouTube. Mm-hmm. And I mentioned it to her, and she laughed hysterically. And, and we just chatted. She was really cool. The other one that comes to mind, uh, they're both blondes, uh, strangely, is I was working at Carmine's, and this security guard walks in and checks out a table. I was upstairs. Brings in this long line of people, and who's there but John Stamos, who's about 5'1", mm-hmm. and Rebecca Romaine Stamos. They were married at this time. Huh. And she looked like a goddess. She looked like uh, she... she was just glowing and tall and beautiful and looked you dead in the eye. And when she looked me dead in the eye, I was taking the order. Uh, All of my senses were lost. I could not (laughs) think about anything. It was like I turned into... And she she said, I'll never forget it. She said, does does a penny of vodka have prosciutto in it? And I said, no, it doesn't have broccoli, Rob. (laughs) Like a total... Idiot. Yeah. And she looked at me like I had five heads. Yeah. And of course, I was embarrassed the whole rest of the time. But yeah, a ton of... Yeah. Uh, one time at Carmine's, I, I waited on P. Diddy and his whole crew. And they ran me around like crazy, opening champagne. And and then walked out without paying the credit card. Oh. So I had to chase after the assistant. The assistant gave me zero oh. for tip. And it was like two grand. Oh, I don't know. There are millions uh, yeah. of celebrity stories. Yeah. I've got. Well, uh, it's kind of a crazy biz. Yeah, it's a it's a lot. I, it, it, in New York, it's funny because you you see celebrities all the time, and I'm not really that phased. Yeah, I'm never phased by celebrities. I don't really care, except for <laughs> Rebecca Romijn's. Yeah, uh, yeah, exactly. Uh, so um, let's let's make a little list for people. So if they're going to go shopping. Let's do it. All right, so we said Riesling. So let's pick a producer for Riesling. I'm going to go with Sybil Kuntz, K-U-N-T-Z. She makes fantastic Riesling. Uh, Obviously, J.J. Prume is a really good producer. Keller. Peter Lauer. Peter Lauer. So take notes, people. Delicious. Yeah. Uh, For lighter reds, I'm going to go with Anthony Thevenet Morgone. Morgone is the area in Beaujolais. It's one of the crews. If you can't find his, there's LaPierre. There's other producers. Um, Pinot Noir, let's go to Burgundy. Um, I think if you go to like Savigny Le Bon, Savigny Le Bon, uh, you could find good value. And there's still really just gorgeous wines. California Pinot, I would go with, well, Sinsky makes a great uh, Pinot as well. Again, a little bit more restraint, but fantastic. That's a good one. Um, cab, California Cab. You want to throw one in? Mathiasen. Mathiasen Cabernet. Great wine. Yeah. Corison Cabernet. Corison Cab. Yeah. Those uh, two, I would I would seek out, and they're both approachable in price for Napa mm-hmm. Cabernet for sure. Uh, let's go to stuff that's uh, Nebbiolo. We talked about Nebbiolo. What's a good producer people should look for? I think. If you're spending top dollar, you go to Barolo. Top dollar, you go to Barolo. The very, very top uh, for a very good price is a producer called Brovia. Brovia, okay. I love Brovia, even the 14 Unio bottling. Our guys, Mauro Velio makes a very approachable Barolo that doesn't mm. see any new oak. That's very good. You've got uh, Francesco Clerico. There's a bottle right. of uh, Vigna Colonello out mm. there, 2011, that would be around 59.99 mm. retail. 
those are great. You yeah. could even drop down to Longa Nebbiolo and, and spend right. under $30 and have a great bottle of wine. My other favorite Italian varietal that over-delivers and really good deal is uh, Barbera. High acid, really juicy, and they can be on the shelves from anywhere from 12 to totally. 22, kind of, and you cannot go wrong with Barbera. Um, Chianti from good producers. Like, Chianti is a great uh, call. All right. Um, Champagne-wise, we're going to talk about, uh, we are both huge Billicard fans, just there's a much beautiful freshness to these uh, wines. It's uh, still family-owned after many, many generations. Gorgeous Champagne. Uh, Barèche. I like Barèche. Yeah. I like George Laval. George Laval. You turned me on to Laval. Those are very good. Spectacular Champagne. If you want to spend uh, a lot of money, the Prevo wines, mm-hmm. Libigine, mm-hmm. those are fantastic. I guess if Looper and I were going to impart one thing, just going after wine, uh, as we were talking about uh, Psalm-wise, ask the questions of the Psalm, ask the questions of your retailer. And if they're steering you toward, this is not a personal attack, toward Veuve Clicquot, Santa Margarita, these are big juggernaut brands that, that you're not supporting the right families, you're not supporting the sustainability that we're chatting about. Um, go after the smaller producers. Do something more interesting. You don't need to uh, bring Vuve to brag uh, to everybody because it's really a rather mass-produced product that has a lot of sweetness to it, uh, preying on the fact that they're hoping you still like Coca-Cola. Um, and the same with a lot of the bigger California cabs, that like uh, Opus and things like that. Steer away. Find something interesting. Um, it's yeah. Just don't uh, right. What's I your, think I think you can that? just. It's all a dialogue thing, right? If you open the dialogue with, I'm not really into the big brand stuff, uh, not that there's anything wrong with them, but I want to try something new. Yes. Put it in the hands of somebody that can, hopefully they know their selection better than you do, and they can show you something cool because they're going to want you to come back. Mm-hmm. And that, that's really the one piece of advice that, that I would give is engage with the sommelier or the retailer and, and have a relationship it's always good to be a regular, right? Yes. I, I spend a lot of the joy that I get in this job is feeling like a regular. I think a lot of people in this industry, that, that's one of the things that really draws us, a little bit Norm from Cheers vibe. You, you, you go in and, and people know what you like or they know that you're into certain things and they know you personally. If you can do that as a consumer and just have a little relationship, you'll be able to... Just like if you had a good relationship with the butcher, they might call you up for a cool, you know, cut. Yeah, or it's you don't wait idea. in line, or you call ahead, uh, or you get, uh, you know, the, the the stock bones that he'll save for you. Yeah. It's the same with the retailer. And so, if you're in their store and they're steering you towards something you don't, you're in the wrong store. New York is way too big, and actually, all I, I travel around the country. Different. There are great retailers in, in every state. Find uh, somebody who cares, and you could tell by the way this store is curated. If there's huge orange labels because they they're a big proponent of Vuv or Santa Margarita, or you're in the wrong store. That's simple. Find somewhere, and you can. Uh, but uh, uh, what was the song we were t- we we were talking? Your other song was "Little Drummer Boy." Little Drummer Boy. Okay. You so gonna take it out, John? I think we're. Uh, <laughs> oh no! First, wait. No, no. We gotta. You gotta check Looper out uh, on uh, social media. I am Looper, and what's your I'm website? RyanLooper.com. I write about uh, the market and about sales stuff. What it's like to be a salesperson, salesperson mm-hmm. experience. 
Yeah, check it out. You yeah. have time. And check my uh, website out as well. It's just DOTJ Podcast. Drop me a note if you want. I can actually uh, put some of these suggestions out to you in a personal email, or I'll just post it on my website. Uh, and uh, we're going to sign out with... Uh, Come, they, they told me, pa-ra-pa-pum-pum, a newborn king to see, pa-ra-pa-pum-pum. <laughs> David Bowie, peace on earth. <laughs> let's, anyway. let's vamp. Let's vamp after this. <laughs> I want to thank uh, Ryan Loop for stopping by. Uh, Christmas is a couple weeks away. I uh, hope you all have a good one, and I'll speak to you soon. we got Thanks, Santa John. Claus coming up on Christmas Eve, so that's going to be awesome. I'll speak to you. Bye. Thanks again for listening. Don't forget to check us out at dotjpodcast.com. Until then, I'll see you at the bar. Bye.